the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And I'm going to read verse 17, even though I'll comment later that in the Hebrew, it's actually the first verse of chapter 2, but because it's verse 17 in our English Bibles, I'm going to read it, even though I'm not going to talk about it today. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the gospel in your word, all over your word, threaded throughout your word, illustrated in your word, proclaimed in your word. So we give thanks for the gospel in Jonah. We give thanks that Jonah gives us a reason to see it again. I pray that seeing it again might fill us with fresh confidence in the gospel, faith in the gospel, and lives that reflect the greatness of the gospel and the God of the gospel. All this, Lord, we offer up in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by telling you a story. Many of you will recognize this. Seems fitting to have a stool here to tell you a story. God had a, jo- a job for Jonah, but Jonah didn't want it. Go to Nineveh, God said. Tell your worst enemies that I love them. No, said Jonah. Those are bad people doing bad things. Exactly, said God. They have run far away from me. But I can't stop loving them. I will give them a new start. I will forgive them. No, said Jonah. They don't deserve it. I'll run away, Jonah said to himself. Far away. So far away that God won't be able to find me. Then I won't have to do what God says. It's a good plan, he said, because as far as he knew, it was a good plan. 
But of course, it wasn't a good plan at all. It was a silly plan because you can't, you can run away from God, but it'll always come and find you. Jonah went ahead with his not very good plan. One ticket to not Nineveh, please, he said, and boarded a boat sailing in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. Well, it wasn't long before a fierce wind blew, and the boat started to lurch and pitch and roll, and everyone started turning green. Jonah sat bolt upright in his bed. You see, the first thing that went wrong with Jonah's not very good plan was that God sent a big storm after him. The sailors couldn't sail their ship properly. We're sinking, they screamed, and started throwing everything overboard, suitcases, food, whatever they could find. And now, by now, Jonah knew that the storm was his fault. Throw me in. Instead, he shouted to the sailors, and the storm will stop. The sailors weren't sure. It's the only way you can be saved, Jonah cried. And so one, two, three, splash. No sooner had Jonah hit the water than the the waves grew calm, the wind died down, and the storm stopped. Just then, when Jonah thought it was all over, when he was sure he was going to drown, God sent a big fish to rescue him. The fish swallowed Jonah whole with one big gulp. Jonah must have thought he died. It was so dark in there, like a tomb. Then he smelled the rotting food and felt the slimy seaweed, and he knew he wasn't dead. He was in the belly of the fish. Sitting there in the darkness for three whole days, Jonah had plenty of time to think. Pretty soon he realized his plan was, well, a very silly plan indeed. He was sorry for running away. He prayed to God from inside the great fish and God, and asked God to forgive him. After three days, the fish spat Jonah safely out onto the sandy beach. Just then, Jonah heard someone calling his name. Go to Nineveh, God said. And this time, Jonah said yes. He went straight to Nineveh and told everyone God's wonderful message. Even though you've run far away from God, he can't stop loving you, Jonah told them. Run to him so he can forgive you. The people of Nineveh listened to Jonah, and they started loving God. They learned to do what God said and stopped running away from him, just like Jonah. Many years later, God would send another messenger with the same wonderful message. Like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness. But this messenger would be God's own son. He would be called the Word, because he himself would be God's message. God's message translated into our own language, everything God wanted to say to the whole world in a person. It's obviously from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And as we work through the book over the next few weeks, we're going to explain, I'm actually somewhat comfortable on this stool this morning, so um, I may sit here a little bit more. Uh, We're going to explain a few very minor details of the story differently than the Jesus Storybook Bible, but but I open with it not to major over the few minor differences I have with it, but to magnify the big picture that the Jesus Storybook Bible gets dead right, and that is that the story of Jonah is not about a big, scary fish who swallows sinners as a judgment from God, but a big, gracious God who saves sinners from the judgment of God. The book of Jonah is about more than that in all of its detail, but it's certainly not about less than that. And if, it's only, if it must only be about one thing, one big thing, it must be about that. Now, 
case that's the first time that you've heard the book of Jonah is about the gospel, to assure you that we're not on unstable ground here, consider what Jesus himself said about Jonah. It's Matthew chapter 12. You can turn there if you want, but I don't think it's necessary because we'll have the words up on the screen. It's the Sabbath. And a number of very significant things happened back to back to back. Jesus' disciples pluck heads of grain in the grain fields. Then Jesus heals a man's withered hand in the synagogue. Verse 15 says, following that, he healed many who followed him. And in the presence of that multitude, he healed a blind and mute, demon-possessed man. And the Pharisees, who had already, earlier in the chapter, begun to conspire against him to destroy him, begin to accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. All of that is some necessary Background, some relevancy for their question in verse 38 because it strips any degree of sincerity for their request for a sign and it calls their question rightly what it is. It's an effort on their part to prove their accusation against Jesus true. Thus giving them just cause to do in their minds to him what they wanted to do most, which Matthew says plainly was to destroy him by this point in his ministry. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, what does he do? He points them back to their scriptures. And he points them back to the prophet Jonah. And he tells Bible readers of all ages what the story of Jonah is about at its core. The story of Jonah was a sign of the salvation that Jesus would accomplish by his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. If you don't believe me, here's Jesus' words. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came forth from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, there's two extremely significant terms in those words for our purposes this morning that I want to make sure we note, because what's Jesus doing here in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus is interpreting the story of Jonah for us. And he's using words on purpose in the process to tell us what Jonah is. And Jesus says that Jonah is, first of all, a sign. It's verse 39, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what that means is not that Jesus was saying the book of Jonah is symbolic, as in non-historical. Quite the contrary. Jesus affirms Jonah's historicity again and again in the words that follow in both verse 40 and in verse 41. So what Jesus meant by identifying Jonah as a sign was that Jonah pointed the way forward toward another destination. In other words, Jonah's story is in the Bible, not as an end in and of itself. Jonah's story served as a sign and pointed the way forward to another story. And verse 41 further steers us down the road toward identifying the other story to which Jonah as a sign pointed. And Jesus says, 
Jonah pointed the way forward to, second kind of key term, phrase, something greater. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, meaning himself. And we know he's referring to himself here with these words because of the connection he's already made in verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we have Jonah as a sign in his three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, pointing forward to what Jesus says is the greater reality and the ultimate purpose of Jonah in himself, specifically in his three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, following his death for sin and just before his resurrection from the dead in victory over sin and death and Satan. And by definition, a sign that points forward to a greater reality in the person and work of Jesus is a biblical type. So the story of Jonah, which Jesus affirmed really was meant among other things, which we will discuss over the next three weeks, ultimately to foreshadow the death and resurrection Jesus would accomplish for the salvation of his people. Now, if progressive revelation, in other words, later Revelation interprets the story of Jonah for us, specifically in the words of Jesus himself. Prior revelation locates the story of Jonah for us. So we turned forward from Jonah to find out what later writers have to say about Jonah, and we found exactly what we're looking for in Jesus' own words. But it's also helpful, I would say, it's also necessary to turn backwards in our Bibles as well, to place Jonah in the context in which he ministered. I would even say this is a huge function of kings and chronicles in the Old Testament, just like Acts in the New Testament. They are historical books that place epistles and psalms and prophets in their contexts. And with Jonah, prior revelation locates him really conveniently, unmistakably, in 2 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. There's a couple of really significant things there that I want to make sure we noted as I read those verses, and we'll go from the most obvious to the least obvious. Here's a list. So first of all, from a timeline perspective, 
Jonah's prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. If you need years, if you're one of those people, I'm just going with the history books here, 793 to 753 B.C. Number two. 2 Kings 14 describes this Jeroboam's reign as a time of God's blessing on the northern kingdom. Some describe it as their political zenith or the apex of their glory. And the significance of this in our text is that it's all attributed to God's pleasure alone because, number three, Jeroboam was an evil king. Verse 24 says it point blank. He did not depart from the sins of the first Jeroboam, which, if you can think back all the way, can be summarized by the worship of two golden calves in both Dan and Bethel after the kingdom split in two. And yet despite that, number four, 2 Kings 14 and verse 27 says that God saved Israel by the hand of Jeroboam. Not in response to anything he did or they did to seek it or to earn it, but by God's mercy and God's compassion alone. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. And 2 Kings 14 places Jonah in the thick of that, prophesying that it would happen. And I think it's a significant thing to keep in mind, and it makes Jonah somewhat unique among the prophets because the historical books record Jonah preaching a different message to a different people than the prophecy named after him. So in 2 Kings 14, Jonah is preaching a message of blessing and restoration to Israel, his people. And the places that he names as Israel's borders in 2 Kings 14 are named on purpose to portray the northern kingdom as being restored by God's grace to some of the glory that was true of Israel under Solomon's reign, which was the height of Israel's glory. And Jonah is not only prophesying that it would happen, but he's living during the time in which it is fulfilled. In the book of Jonah, by stark contrast. He's commissioned out of Israel to Israel's enemies to preach a message of judgment on one hand, but of repentance on the other hand. So he's portrayed in 2 Kings as an obedient prophet, preaching blessing and expansion and restoration and glory to his own nation, which was sinful and idolatrous and ruled by an evil king. In Jonah, he's not only the reluctant prophet, but he's the rebellious prophet. So he is the opposite in Jonah as he is in 2 Kings. And by the end of the story, Jonah, he himself tells us why. He tells us what changed. So let me quote him. So this is just after Nineveh repents and believes. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So, um, listen, listen carefully. 
Jonah is faithful and obedient when mercy and blessing are held out to him and to his people, unworthy as they are. But he's disobedient and angry and pouty and complaining when the same mercy is held out to people that he judges as less worthy of God's mercy than himself and his people. Ouch. And suddenly, Jonah becomes a book that not only continues to hold out to us in types and shadows, the gospel calling us to believe and rejoice all over again. But the details of the story itself brings every one of us into the story to bring us to repentance over our sin and to show us our glaring need for the gospel that the book of Jonah proclaims. So brothers and sisters, we are Jonah. What I mean by that is We're happy. We're thankful. We're obedient when mercy and blessing come our way. Most of us are even willing to admit that it's undeserved. But let mercy and blessing be shown to our enemies. And then we've got a problem. It's what Nineveh and the nation that Nineveh represented was to Israel. So when God says he saw Israel's affliction was bitter and there was none to help, it was because just a few short years before Jonah's ministry, the very Assyria to which Jonah is now commissioned to bring God's message of salvation had put Israel to tribute under King Jehu and had taken some of their land. And in just a few short years after Jonah's prophecy, Assyria would come again and finish the job for good and carry the northern kingdom away captive, never to return. And suddenly, that awful scene in the garden is resurfaced all over again. So bring mercy and compassion and blessing our way because God, we're your covenant people. But show mercy toward and bless our enemies at your people's expense God doesn't expect us to be involved in that kind of work, does he? That awful scene in the garden resurfaced all over again where at the heart of man's fall was this thought. I deserve this. In the garden, it was, we deserve this knowledge that you're withholding from us. As the serpent said, it's not fair, God, that you keep it for yourself alone. So what did they do? They ate and they fell and they plunged the world into sin under the curse destined toward death and in desperate need of redemption. With Jonah, it is no different. It's the same story. It is, we are your people. We may not deserve mercy and compassion, but we do more than them. They're your enemies. They are the oppressors of your people. God, how could you show mercy to them? And just like Adam and Eve ate and hid and lied and pointed fingers, so Jonah fled and hid and wished he were dead. 
Do you not hear yourself and see yourself in the prophet Jonah? So the book is not only meant to hold out the gospel to us, but to show us our need for it over and over every time we read it. Because as long as we are in these bodies of flesh, in this sin-cursed world, and in the crosshairs of a very deceptive enemy, brothers and sisters, you will not be cured of gladly receiving mercy yourself and humbly admitting your own unworthiness of it, but let mercy be shown to someone else at your expense. especially somebody that you deem less worthy. And suddenly the inherent sinful comparison game starts and fuels the age-old pride and anger and complaining and resistance. And only in Christ, by faith, in the gospel of his sin-bearing death and life-giving resurrection, will you not only gladly receive mercy and blessing when God in his sovereign goodness pleases to send it your way, but only in Christ, brothers and sisters, will you gladly give your life, sacrifice yourself so that mercy might be shown to others who don't deserve it either. Because in Christ you see yourself rightly on equally unworthy ground as them. And for as rebellious as Jonah is in this book, in chapter 1, he comes, as briefly as it is, to the very realization that I've just described. And in so doing, he's caught up in one of the vivid, vivid gospel illustrations in this book. So let's, let's see it. There are two scenes to chapter 1. The first is Jonah's commission and his response. It's verses 1 through 3. It takes place quickly. By verse 4, they're on the ship, on the sea. It's where the second takes place, carries us to the end of the chapter. There's three commands in God's commission. They're all in verse 2. Arise, go, call out. And it's not just obvious detail this morning. It's not just space filler that that is going to become significant two other times in the book so tuck it away what we're told in chapter one about jonah's message presents only one side of it god says call out against the city for their evil has come up before me so the message that jonah is commissioned to preach to nineveh is on the one hand a message of judgment because nineveh's sins have reached heaven which is language reminiscent of two other infamous cities in scripture you probably know what they are they're infamous for all the wrong reasons sodom Genesis 18 and Babylon in Revel in Sodom in Genesis 18 and Babylon in Revelation 18. And so if you've heard sermons from Jonah before, you've likely heard details of Nineveh's horrific sins. So think of those because they're probably true. But just know, brothers and sisters, that we have enough of the picture of Nineveh in Scripture itself to know that it is an unbelievably wicked city cast on purpose in Scripture in the same light as Sodom and Babylon. And while it may seem that Jonah fled the opposite direction out of fear of what might happen to him in that city, we know from chapter 4 that his problem was more with God than with Nineveh, were even clued into his motive in fleeing as early as chapter 1 and verse 3, where he paid the fare 
He went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, when you read those words, the underlined ones there, you've got to consider whether or not Jonah, who was a prophet of God, you've got to consider whether Jonah doesn't understand anymore the theological category of omnipresence or if his efforts to escape the presence of God was something other than in that moment forgetting these words, which he would have had access to. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, God. Night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So what I'm saying is, I don't think Jonah's fleeing is attempting to escape omnipresence here. I think the text even makes this clear later in chapter 1, when the sailors are interrogating Jonah, and he confesses this in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, which is basically Jonah's confession of God's omnipresence. So if he's not fleeing omnipresence, what's he fleeing? Just going to rip off Sinclair Ferguson's terminology here because I love it. He says, he's not trying to flee omnipresence, but felt presence. Which Kevin Youngblood explains as a kind of self-imposed exile. So he was trying to Escape the revelation of God experienced in the particular place where God chose for his name to dwell. And Tarshish had the reputation as a place not yet graced by God's glory and revelation. So what's Jonah doing? He's trying to escape his calling. But brothers and sisters, as Paul tells us in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So not only can Jonah not escape omnipresence, nor can you, nor can I, but neither can he nor we escape felt presence either. It is important to note that God doesn't prevent Jonah from running, and he may not prevent you from running either. Jonah finds a ship. Jonah pays the fare. The ship leaves the port. It sets out to Tarshish. But then in verse 4, there is that Ephesians 2, 4. There's that, but God. The God who made the sea hurled a great wind upon the sea. And if you scan the chapter, you're going to notice that the word hurl is repeated three other times. When the mariners try to lighten the ship, they hurled the cargo into the sea. And when that doesn't work, and in the process of hurling the cargo into the sea, they find Jonah sleeping down with the cargo. And in God's providence, they repeat the very words of God from which Jonah was fleeing. And I wonder, if you, have you noticed that before? The mariners say what? Arise, call out. 
And what I'm suggesting to you is that those words not only wake Jonah out of his physical sleep, but in being awakened by those words from his physical sleep, he hears in them the voice of God from which he was fleeing, telling him that his efforts to flee are futile. So that when the lot falls on him as the cause for the storm, and the men know that Jonah's God sent the storm, and Jonah's God alone could still the storm, and when they ask Jonah what they might do to appease Jonah's God, Jonah knows that in order for the many innocent ones on the ship to be saved, that the guilty one must die. Which is why he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And after some resistance, they do. And the sea ceases from its raging. And the many who were saved by the sacrifice of the one did what? In verse 16. They worshipped. They feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And brothers and sisters, if that is not a gospel illustration, I don't know what is. Only in the gospel, it's not the one guilty one reluctantly sacrificed for the salvation of the many innocent ones. In the gospel, it is the one innocent one willingly sacrificed for the salvation of the many, many guilty ones. And I agree with Brian Estelle in his awesome, awesome commentary on this book that it is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. You can't help but note that there is um, an intentional, so I'm saying the author does this on purpose. In Jonah 1, there is an intentional descent of Jonah as portrayed in this first chapter. So just note, note it, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare second time and he went down into the ship. And when, Jonah sends, when God sends the wind and the mariners are struck with fear, verse 5 says that Jonah goes further down into the inner part of the ship and he falls asleep. The trajectory of his life in chapter 1 on the run from God is on purpose portrayed in scripture as it always is in reality toward death. Toward Sheol in the Old Testament. And where chapter 1 leaves us, because again, verse 17 in English is verse 1 in chapter 2 of Hebrews, so I'm just going to save it till next week. Jonah's descent by the end of chapter 1 is complete. It's complete when he's hurled off the ship into the sea, and it seems in being hurled off the ship into the sea that he's hurled down to death. To Sheol. But what we're going to find next week 
is that God's purposes toward Jonah are not to judge him or kill him, but to save him and raise him. Just as God's purposes in Jesus were not to kill him, but to raise him. Why? Because Psalm 16 and verse 10 says this, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Brothers and sisters, I trust that with this intro to Jonah, that it's clear to you that Jonah is about the gospel. And I trust that in seeing Jonah, you see yourself. And you see the trajectory of your life without Christ always, only ever toward death. Trust that you identify with Jonah's vain efforts to run from God. And I hope and I pray that all over again this morning you find life and hope and purpose in the willful sacrifice of the one innocent one for you, the guilty. Let's pray. Father, we we prayed over this text after we read it, thanking you for the gospel that even before reading it, we know would be in it. This is your word. Your word is about the gospel. It's proclaimed. It's shown forth in types and shadows. It's illustrated vividly for us and every single time. It calls every one of us as sinners to repentance and faith and repentance and faith. So in Jonah, we find not a role model. In Jonah, we see ourselves and our sin. In Jonah, Lord, we see our tendency to gladly, happily, obediently receive mercy when it comes our way. But to be so unwilling, so hesitant to celebrate it when it comes to those that we, in our sin, deem less worthy or even to give our own lives so that mercy might be shown to others. Father, only in the gospel do we find freedom from that bondage. Only in the gospel do we know that any degree of mercy that comes our way is in Christ, in Christ alone, and only in the gospel will we realize and gladly accept that we are here to give our lives so that the mercy of the gospel might reach the many, many, many unworthy people just like us to the ends of the earth. Father, we give you thanks for the gospel this morning. My prayer is that we as Christ Fellowship would hold fast to the gospel, all the while knowing, resting assured that it is you, by your grace, that holds us fast. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.